Um, right now, uh, let's have a word of prayer together uh, before we get into to our study. And uh, because we want the, the one who inspired the writings of the Bible to lead us through the Bible. And so uh, I would ask that you join me now. Let's kneel together before the Lord. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy holy name. Father, we thank you so much for this uh, this beautiful Sabbath day, the time that we have uh, to come together each week to spend with you and uh, to praise your name and to study your holy word and and to get a taste of heaven and and to get a a resurgence of that blessing of that spiritual bond that we can only have through Christ. And so, Lord, we've come together here uh, to worship Thee. We've come together here to learn what it is You'd have us to learn today and to gain a, a refreshment, that saving energy that we learned about in Sabbath school this morning that uh, wholly comes from Thee. And, Father, we, we ask that You will uh, send holy angels to be with us. We ask for the Holy Spirit to be with us with power, Lord. And uh, we pray for unity amongst the believers, that we can come and press together and be in unity to finish this work, to reach souls for the kingdom. Father, we lift up before you those uh, who have lost loved ones recently, those who have gone through tragedy. We pray that you be very near to them, and, and may we aid them in some way, and may they see Jesus in us as we help uh, the least of them. And Father, we pray that you will bless your church, bless your people. We're coming into a time where we are to be fitted for the battle with the beast. And so, Lord, we need the armor placed upon us that we may stand and be courageous in the righteousness of Christ. Father, we pray that you forgive us our sins. We claim the bloodshed of Calvary for us that we may be washed clean and it's not because of any merit or any more, you know, anything that we've done to earn this but what Jesus has done for us. All to Jesus we surrender, Lord. And Lord, as we have been studying Your Word about Your people, about who and what is the church, we continue that here this morning. I pray that uh, You will bless uh, the reading of Your Word that you give me the thoughts you wish conveyed to the congregation. And, and Lord, uh, may we take these things and study them out for ourselves. And uh, may we find the truth and live the truth. Please bless us, Lord, for we do need your blessings. And we ask this in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is worthy. Amen. Beloved, we have been studying the biblical description of God's church, and it is my sincere hope and prayer that all are seeing the truth as it is in Jesus. In our study, we have found several characteristics in the Bible of God's church, and I hope you've noticed that these characteristics reflect the character of Jesus. I hope that you've noticed that. It's not by accident. You see, remember what we've learned, remember what we've studied before, wherever Jesus is, there is His church. Isn't that true? Now I'm going to be closing up this chapter, I call it, of the series, you know, This Is My Body, as the name of the series, uh, that's what I've entitled it, Defining God's Church. And I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to be closing this chapter of the series in the next couple of weeks and moving into uh, what I call another chapter about the church concerning gospel order. But before I do that, I wanted to take a look at God's people from the time of Christ and the apostles to today. That's why I've uh, entitled this, uh, this study, His Story Through the Ages. You know, history, His Story Through the Ages. 
gospel, we can learn a lot of things. And, and I think if you, 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 you look at the church, you know, you look at God's people, and, and we could go back to the beginning of Genesis, you know. We know that story. We know, and you can follow it up through Israel. But I want to concentrate on when Jesus was here up to our time. Up to our time, essentially. <clears throat> His story through the ages. John the Revelator was given a most astonishing, uh, I believe, prophecy foretelling what would happen in Christendom and the future of the Christian church. This was seen in the prophecy of the seven seals and and the four horsemen. And and I want to begin there. I want to begin in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6 and uh, uh, verse 1. And we're going to look at this together. It says, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. A lot of symbolism here. We, we who are... Uh, people of the book, isn't that what they, they call us? Christians, those who follow Jesus whithersoever he goeth. Uh, used to be called people of the book. I wonder sometimes anymore. In our study of prophecy, you know, we're a prophetical people. The study of prophecy, we realize in uh, many parts of Daniel and prophecies and in Revelation, it's very symbolic, isn't it? Now it says that there's these beasts here. The beast says, come and see. And the Greek word for beast here in this instance is zoa, which means living beings. Living beings. It does not indicate to what order of beings that these four belong to. However, it's very interesting that they closely resemble those that you find in Ezekiel's vision there in Ezekiel uh, 1. And Ezekiel calls them cherubim. So the living beings could be angels or some other being. We just, we just really aren't told. And, and it's not the main thing of, of what is being shared here. The white horse is a symbol, friends. It's a symbol that represents the church in the apostolic age. Uh, from 31, you know, 30, 31 A.D. Uh, to uh, approximately 100 A.D. It's a symbol that represents the apostolic church when it's purity of faith. That's, you know, suggested by the white color of the horse. And it's zeal. Led, it led it to, uh, to make the greatest spiritual conquests in Christian history. The bow in the rider's hand, it symbolizes conquest. And the crown symbolizes victory. And friends, when you look at this, you look at the age and what it symbolizes, you know, in one generation, the, the news that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and that sins could be forgiven simply by coming to Him in faith and confessing was taken to the whole world. Remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 1.23. He said, The gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. according to Christian tradition. And we, we see this. Andrew went as a missionary to India, and, and Nicodemus, you remember him, he went as a missionary to the area that today is called the British Isles. The message was spread. The message of Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel, was spread over all Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Philip shared with the Ethiopian eunuch who took the gospel back to Ethiopia. And from that time, there were Christians in Ethiopia. The news that Jesus had broken the bonds of death and that through Him eternal life was available, it electrified the world. And believers were added to the church worldwide. The gospel was preached to every creature which is under heaven, as Paul was saying. And when confronted that this teaching was contrary to the prevailing ideas of society, 
the position of the early believers was that they ought to obey God rather than men. You remember? Acts 5.29. We ought to obey God rather than man. You see, they had a they had what is termed a primitive godliness by, by God's end time prophet. They had a, a primitive godliness or apostolic Christianity, some would say, that every Christian wants, but few people have. The white horse represents the church. It represents God's people following the day of Pentecost that had a pure faith, but, but God foresaw that things would change. They would change. In Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30, the Apostle Paul said to the elders, he said to the bishops and and overseers of the church, he said, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which He hath purchased with His own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise. From who? Your own selves. From your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. What's Paul saying here, friend? Paul says that apostasy would come up from within the church. The greatest danger to the Christian church has never been from the outside, has it? The most dangerous enemies of God's people are those on the inside. There is danger outside, but the most dangerous enemies are those that come up from among us. In the book, The Great Controversy, page 608, we read, Men of talent and pleasing address who once rejoiced in the truth employ their powers to deceive and mislead souls. They become the most bitter enemies of their former brethren. I've seen this. I've experienced this, friends. This is a truth. Sad to say. But you see, we are in the church militant. And it contains the wheat of God, but it also contains enemies that were sown there by the devil. Tares. Foolish Laodicean tares. Let's look at the second seal. Revelation chapter 6, verse 4. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. This horse represents a a blood-stained faith. The pagan Roman government saw that if Christianity was allowed to go on, it would conquer the world. So, you know, they decided to destroy God's people. And that resulted in bitter persecution for hundreds of years. And millions of Christians were martyred for their faith. Some were fed to starving lions, leopards, you know, all these ferocious beasts. Others were crucified. Some were burned to death. And many other things. If you've ever uh, taken a look at Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can just see how terrible man can treat man. The period of the red horse was from about 100 A.D., you know, 90, 100 A.D., somewhere in there, to about 313 A.D., when the Edict of Milan was passed, granting, for the first time, really, official toleration to the Christians. The next change we see in church history, his story, is represented by a black horse. Let's look at Revelation 6, verses 5 and 6. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. 
And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see that thou hurt not the oil and the wine. This is the period of Christian history. The history of God's people following the legalization of Christianity. About 313 A.D., to 538 A.D. That's an important year. (laughs) Black is the color of apostasy, friends. And we see that the Christian faith was compromised during this time of the church. This is where it began. Faith in Christ for salvation was replaced by trust in the church for salvation. During this period of time, an attempt was made to supplant the commandments of God with the commandments of men. The Ten Commandments of God, though, friends, are unchangeable. Jesus said it would be easier for heaven and earth to pass than for one of them to fail because they are eternal. And we know in our studies, they are the character traits of God Himself. And God is eternal. (laughs) Matthew 5.18 is where we read it. Jesus said, For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. I remember Pastor Brooks saying, Stomp the ground. It's still there. Look up, the sky's still there. God's law is still there. In Exodus chapter 20, we're familiar with this. Second commandment says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. He loves us immensely. He wants our worship, our adoration, our service. That's what it means by jealous. He says he's a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me, and what? Keep my commandments. This time of the black horse, God's people began to bow before images, using them in their worship services, although this was forbidden by God. The pagans' day of the sun replaced the Bible Sabbath. Christians didn't want to be thought of as enemies of the Roman state, you see. So they compromised. They said that they, well, you know, we can celebrate on that day too. Have you ever run into anyone like that? Well, I keep Saturday and Sunday. God says to keep one, the seventh day. But they said, we can celebrate on that day too. We can celebrate on Sunday because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And we still hear that today. This very day as an excuse. But you know what the Apostolic Creed says? The Apostolic Creed, Book 7, Section 2 says, O Lord Almighty, Thou hast created the world by Jesus Christ and hath appointed the Sabbath in memory thereof. You see, the apostles knew which day the Sabbath was that it was given because God was the creator of the heavens and the earth. All of the earthly, earthly, uh, excuse me, early Christians uh, in the first century, they kept the Sabbath, the seventh day. We're told by Eusebius that Constantine, in order to recommend this new religion to the heathen, transferred into it the outward ornaments to which they had been accustomed in their own religion. You see, they they could keep their rituals, but now they would be described in Christian terms. The seventh day was no longer the Sabbath. Sunday is now the Sabbath of the Lord. It's the Lord's day. It's not the pagan day to worship the sun god, you see.
It was during this time when Sunday keeping came into to the Christian church. But the Bible says in Genesis 2 and verse 3, we know this, friends, and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it He had rested from all the work which God created and made. But this has been the battle, hasn't it? Ezekiel 22, verse 26 says, Her, her priests have violated my law. And have profaned mine holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean. And have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths. And I am profaned among them. Can God's law be changed? Has God changed it? Concerning this law, Psalms... 89.34 says, My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. The black horse. It was during this time period after Constantine in the 4th century that the men started tampering with God's law, as I said before. Doing away with some, replacing it with something else. And this is the period of time spoken of in the prophecy of the black horse, a a compromised Christianity. But the the worst was yet to come. You see, because compromise leads to a total abandonment of the original principles, or in other words, complete apostasy. What happened next? Revelation chapter 6. Verses 7 and 8. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was Death. And hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. The Greek word translated pale actually means a pale yellowish uh, a green like the substance that someone has just vomited. Because of the compromise new Christians were as far as thinking and habits went the same old pagans. Paul Hutchinson writes in his book 20 Centuries of Christianity The Concise History Page 58, he says the new Christians were, so far as thinking and habits went, the same old pagans. Their desire for baptism was strictly prudential. Their surge into the churches did not mean that Christianity had wiped out paganism. On the contrary, hordes of baptized pagans meant that paganism had diluted the moral energies of organized Christianity to the point of social impotence. Pagan Rome had become Papal Rome. And this resulted in a dead faith. The Apostolic Church had the power of the Holy Spirit. But when the Christian church started imitating pagan customs, let me ask you something. Do Christian churches still imitate pagan customs today? Yes. Absolutely. When they started doing that, they lost the Spirit and they lost the power of God. But they needed something to replace it, to enforce their decrees, you see, to enforce their laws. And what did they do? They went to the state to get power, which resulted in a union of church and state, papal Rome. Religion then became a, a matter of following tradition instead of following the Word of God. Christianity became an established religion in the Roman Empire. And like I said, it took the place of paganism. And Christianity as it existed in the Dark Ages might be termed baptized paganism. Joe Cruz wrote a book, I think he called Baptized Paganism. But these steps of compromise led to this. Notice, human tradition was accepted over the Bible. 
the teaching that religious rituals and works were necessary to be saved. This is what it led to, compromise with error. This is what it leads to, friends. It leads to the, that the church was the supreme authority in ecclesial, ecclesiastical matters, not the Word of God. And that the commandments of human leaders were above the commandments of God. This is what compromise leads to. And during this terrible period of time, again, millions, it's just persecution, millions of Christians lost their lives for their faith. Do you know it was actually a crime for a common person to own a copy of the Scriptures? They outlawed God's Word. That's why it's called by Christian Protestants the Dark Ages, because the light of God had been taken away. Catholics refer to it as the Middle Ages. How convenient. No, friends, the Bible had to be read in secret for fear of death. And it looked like true religion had just about come to an end. But the Bible says, the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. That was our scripture reading for today. Proverbs 4.18 Now, comparatively speaking, there were very few Christians in the world at that time. Because of persecution, they fled to the mountains. Just as it was predicted in Revelation chapter 12. However, the light of truth penetrated the darkness. Amen. Notice what Jude wrote to the Christians in Jude 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. You see, friends, God's people, the true Christians, even when they were locked up in dungeons, prisons, or or exiled, they maintained their faith in Jesus unto death. Bible-believing Christians were scattered, many living in hidden homes and isolated places, especially in the Alps of northern Italy and in the southeast of France. The Waldenses, the Bordeaux, the Huguenots, the Albigenses, the Paulicians, they were among these groups of the Church of God. You know, there were no printing presses in those days, so the Waldenses copied... The scriptures by hand, all the time teaching their children. And while very few in Europe had them, the Waldenses had the scriptures in their own native language and taught that the Bible was the rule of faith and practice above the usages of the church. It was the final arbiter in ecclesiastical matters, not the church. Matthew 4 and verse 4, we know Jesus said to the devil, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the church. That's not what it says. Out of the mouth of God. James chapter 1 verse 18 says, Of his own will begat he us. That's the church. Us. God's people. With the word of truth. He begot us. That we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. You see, friends, the Word of God, the Scriptures produce the church and not the church producing the Word of God. There are millions of people confused about this today. And simply said, the Word is not the child of the church, but is the parent or the origin of the church. Because the church is the people. Remember, Jesus is the Word, is He not? And wherever Jesus is, there is His church. During this period of the Dark Ages, millions of people went to prison and lost their lives because they would not consent to compromise the faith of the Bible. 
They listened to Jude. They contended for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. We're not to disobey the commandment of God in order to obey any human edict, friends, or any church or government. We ought to obey God rather than men, right? And that might be called the creed of the martyrs during the Dark Ages. You know, only the day of final day of judgment will reveal the exact number. But most estimates that I've read are that 50 to 70 million Christians were martyred during the Dark Ages. I've seen some estimates over 100 million people were killed. And we must also keep in mind that there were, there were also non-Christians, a lot of non-Christians that were killed during this time of persecution, like gypsies for one. But the estimate is for Christians that were murdered. 50 to 70 million, some upwards of 100. In 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. He discovered through his study of God's Word that, you know something, we're saved by grace, through faith alone, which is contrary to the doctrine that men were saved by faith or works, which was then commonly believed. Now, I'm not talking about faith that produces good works, friends. I'm talking about either or. Faith saves and doing good works without faith saves. The doctrine in his day was that you could earn or merit God's favor by doing good works, doing penance. Or you could purchase indulgences. And here's Martin Luther. You know, His dad wanted him to be an attorney. One evening he got riding home from, well, going back to, to uh, school. He got caught in a thunderstorm. And there was a clap of thunder that brought him to his knees and he had lost some friends and very close friends because of the plague and they considered that, you know, the judgment of God and and he believed that he if he were to die right then he wouldn't be saved he was in an unsaved condition so he gave himself to God and he went and he joined and became a monk and they taught that you had to do all these kinds of works to merit God's favor Once an hour, seven hours a day, the monks would come together and they would sing. They wore the worst of clothing because, you know, it was felt that you had to suffer. This clothing was very uncomfortable. They ate simple food. But some things that people don't know is that they were a business. Essentially, they made beer and sold it. They dyed clothing and sold it. You see, because that money had to be sent to Rome. (laughs) Martin Luther was looking for peace. He was doing all kinds of works to gain eternal life, but he could not find peace of heart until he read Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, and the Holy Spirit opened his eyes to the truth. Ephesians 2 and verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Walk in what? Good works. You see, Martin Luther came to the realization that of himself, man cannot bring forth good works. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. No, it's necessary for man to be spiritually recreated in Christ before he can produce the good works God purposes he shall bring forth. 
by a change of the will, affections, and purposes, the privilege and duty of witnessing by good works become possible, you see, to all people. And this is accomplished by exercising faith in God and acting upon His promises. Martin Luther found the peace that he was searching for. And he was converted. But we're in a time of incredible apostasy. You know, in the 16th century, there were still many truths of the New Testament that had been lost. And it was impossible that even the best scholars could come to uh, the full knowledge of all Bible truth in just one generation. It'd take time to bring His story back to the people. And Jesus understood that. And like He said to the, to the disciples, I've yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. John sixteen twelve. You can't take all the truth right now. You know, and this is the case for all of us from one time to another, isn't it? We grow in grace each day as God adds truth to truth as we walk with Him. To gain it all at once would blow our mind. It probably would destroy our faith. We couldn't take it. Martin Luther was an instrument of God to bring the entire Christian world back to the apostolic teaching that we are saved by grace and not by works. But that wasn't all that God's children needed to learn. Other teachers were raised up by God to lead His people slowly back to apostolic Christianity, that primitive godliness step by step. See, the Lord wanted His his people to grow in the knowledge of the Christian lifestyle and come to Christian perfection. Christian perfection isn't a popular doctrine today, is it? But it is biblical. And it is God's goal for each one of us. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace. Grow in grace. Sometimes we think that word, you know, I've heard, occupy till I come, and we think we're to stand still till Jesus comes back. Peter says, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Jesus Himself said in Matthew 5.48, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And so Martin Luther and some of the early reformers, we call that the Reformation, started bringing out more and more truths of the Bible. More and more light was being shown into the darkness. And those following the increasing light learned that, well, for one example, infants were not baptized in the apostolic church, but only those who were old enough to manifest their faith. You see, because the, the idea of infant baptism commenced during the Dark Ages. And at that time, it was a capital crime not to believe in infant baptism. But Jesus said in Matthew 28, verses 19 20, He said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. An infant cannot reason from the Scriptures, friends. It cannot learn all that Jesus has commanded. It doesn't have that ability yet. One must choose to accept Jesus and be baptized. And a baby cannot make a, a reasoned choice. There's incredible persecution against God's Word. I mean, they had taken the Bible away, remember. It was a crime, punishable by death in many cases, to have one on your person. Martin Luther wasn't the only one to be persecuted, but every reformer to which God revealed new truth from the Bible. There were a people, later they were called Anabaptists, 
but they discovered the need to be old enough to, to reason from the Scriptures or come to the age of accountability before being baptized. And they were severely persecuted. Later on, as God continued to reveal His story, John Wesley and others studied and learned that God expected His followers to become holy people. As Paul wrote in Hebrews 12, 14, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. You know, John Wesley, he was a member of the Church of England. He wrote quite a large amount on the subject of holiness. And God used John Wesley to bring more and more of his story to the world, to his people. And those who followed his teachings, you know, they became known as Methodists. Did you know that? Lutherans followed teachings of Luther. Did you know that? I think these men would roll in their graves, if it was possible, to see what's happened Step by step, though, God's church was growing in the knowledge of His story and they were being formed more and more into His image. When Jesus left this world, you remember, it was with the promise that He would return again. You remember that? In John 14, verses 1 to 3, Jesus, He's speaking not just to the disciples, He's speaking to us. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Put your name in there. It's personal. I go to prepare a place for Joel. I go to prepare a place for Debbie. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Does Jesus keep His promises? To those who are faithful? Acts chapter 1, verse 11. The angels there talking to the disciples says, This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen Him go into heaven. And so we're coming down through His story, (laughs) through the dark ages, into the 18th and 19th century and towards the end of of the centuries, there was a great religious awakening centered around the promise of the return of Jesus. And Bible students around the world began to see that that we had reached this period of earth's history that the Bible described as the last days or the time of the end. And God began to move upon His servants all over the world and in many different church organizations to proclaim the news that the second coming of Christ was approaching. The bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Within just a few years, earnest Bible students in many countries learned principal doctrines of the apostles that had been lost during the Dark Ages. Some of those included the Sabbath of the Fourth Commandment. It included health principles, how to live as Christ's followers, the truth about hell, what happens after death. Baptism, intercession, prayer. And friends, as we've learned in our studies, there are only two churches in the world. And the true church of Christ, that it teaches we ought to obey God rather than men. And the church of Antichrist that is described in Matthew fifteen nine is teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. There are thousands of religions. There are thousands of church organizations today, all with conflicting creeds, but they all have one thing in common. 
except for one. Except for God's church, God's people. All these others, they have one thing in common. They teach the commandments of men above the commandments of God. You see, most people who call themselves Christians have a religion that's a mixture of the Word of God and the commandments of men. But God predicted that in the last days there would be some people who would repair the breach made in God's law, which was the attempt, you see, to destroy the fourth commandment. Notice what it says in Isaiah 58. Verse 12 to 14. Nay, that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations. Thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. This has been God's story. It's taken time, friends, to repair these things. To restore the paths. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. God's people in the last days, in the days we're living in, will be commandment-keeping people. They will be repairers of the breach in God's law. As we've covered before, John describes the two identifying characteristics that God's people will possess. And we've studied, you know, ten characteristics. But these two include all the other characteristics. Friends, you can put them in there. Revelation 14, 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And this is where we are. This is where the people of God are in His story. We're right there at the end of time, just before the return of the Savior. But there are a few things left to happen. We have a work to do for our Master, Jesus Christ, don't we? That work is also described in Revelation 14. We have a message of warning to give to the world. We have the three angels' messages to share with the world. And encapsulated in those messages, we find all truth necessary for salvation. Necessary for preparation to meet Jesus in peace. And I want to share just a few differences between his story and that of Satan to consider, for we have eternal decisions to make dealing with these particular issues as those living in the time of the end. And I say his story because not only can these differences be seen throughout the history of God's people, but it truly is the story of the life of Jesus through his people. We are his story. Beloved, and I would ask that you please weigh these carefully as the test is coming very soon. Concerning authority, ultimate authority, his story says that religious authority comes from God's word. His word is sufficient to bring each person to Christian perfection. Satan's Well, religious authority comes from man and groups of men, such as church councils or theologians, edicts, church bulls, church laws. Concerning prayer, his story says prayer is made to God the Father and is offered in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Satan's is that prayers are made to the dead to angels and saints with the use of images. Concerning salvation, 
His story says that salvation can be received by grace alone, through faith alone. The good works of the Christian do not earn any merit. We're saved by the merits of Christ alone. It's His righteousness, His robe that's placed upon us. Satan's, he says salvation comes by grace or is earned. Either by the works of the believer or by the good works of saints. And remember, those who receive the mark of the beast, friends, can receive it in the forehead or in the hand. What about intercession? His story is that the Christian goes to Christ alone as his intercessor and receives forgiveness for sins by the merits of Christ alone. The Bible says, 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Satan says the Christian goes to human intercessors to receive forgiveness for sins. He goes to confession. He goes to the priest. And is is the Pope who is the final arbiter. (laughs) What about worship? His story is found in Exodus 20 verses 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day, the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is. Friends, I I don't see how... That can't be taken literally. Six days is six days. But he rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And we know writing several decades after the cross, Paul speaking of the seventh day says that it remains. You read that in Hebrews 4. But Satan says you can worship on any day. You can worship on Friday. Many do, actually. Many worship on Sunday. Millions. The ancient pagan solar holiday. You see, that is Satan's mark. That's the day he wants you to worship on. But he's going to enforce, try to compel us not to keep the Sabbath. What about death? Spiritualism is going to be a key to deceiving the world, friends. Death. His story says in Psalms 115, verse 17, The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. Genesis 3, 19, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Jesus called death what? He called it a sleep, didn't he? But Jesus spake of his death. John 11, verse 13. Acts 24, 15. And have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. So when you die, you're dead. You're asleep. You're resting in the grave. You're either going to be resurrected with the just, or you're going to be resurrected with the unjust. Satan says when a person dies, he goes to heaven or hell or some other undesirable place. But that the soul never dies. As mentioned before, baptism. His story says baptism is by immersion. And Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. That's because if you believe, you will be baptized and you're going to be saved. You cannot be an infant because you first must believe. You must have that ability. Satan says infant baptism of sprinkling or pouring, which is 
not taught in the Bible is just fine. And in fact, preferred. You see, it's all part of this being saved in your sins and not from your sins. What about health laws? 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 to 20. His story says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We belong to God. We're to bring glory to Him in how we treat our physical temple in our spiritual temple. Paul says three chapters before, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God, what? Destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Satan says, eh, there are no health laws. They've been abolished. They were nailed to the cross. We can eat and drink whatever we please. Yeah, you can smoke, you can eat, you can drink, you can smoke, you can take drugs, do whatever. Are you learning his story, friends? You know, Jesus will recognize those who have learned His story and have become His story. Who are these people who will meet the Lord in peace at His return? Who are they? Revelation 22 and verse 14 says, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. That is, that is remarkable to me, friends. Because when I look at the grand scope of things, I look at the big picture, I see, I see God, and I see me. How can I have any rights? <laughs> but if you keep His commandments, you have a right to the tree of life. And those who are loyal to the laws of the heavenly government will have the right to the tree of life. We can enter in through the gates into the city. And there will be some who will not enter the city. Many, in fact. Billions will be found outside who had a chance to learn and become his story, but refused. And you look at the very next verse. Revelation twenty-two fifteen, For without are dogs and sorcerers, and whoremongers, and murderers, and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. Those are people who are breaking the commandments. Beloved, the time is soon upon us when the church militant will be shaken, and all the foolish Laodicean tares will be bound and and the wheat of God will be gathered into His barn. The church militant will become the church triumphant. And all creation, all creation will see His story revealed for all eternity through His triumphant church. It's not too late, my friends. There's still time to listen to learn. There's still time to accept the story of Jesus into your heart and become a member of His body, His church. There's still time. But it's coming to a close. Paul said, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He says in Hebrews 3, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if ye will hear His voice, harden not your hearts.
My friends, when Jesus comes, will you be one of those who are welcomed into the holy city? Or will you be left on the outside? Will Jesus see his story in you? I pray that he will. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much for Jesus. We thank you for your holy word. We humbly ask, Father, that you will pour out your spirit upon us. Cleanse us from our unrighteousness. We pray for grace. We pray for the robe of Christ's righteousness. We pray for his life to be in us, that we may be commandment keepers. That we will not be shaken out of the body of Christ. That we will not be bound for the fire. We pray, Lord, that we will, when Jesus returns, be found faithful and have a right to enter into the city, have a right to the tree of life. Please, Lord, help us to that end. Continue to be with us and bless us this Sabbath day, we pray in Jesus' name.